and namaste to all of you. We are continuing tonight with the readings from the Bhagavad Gita. We are in the middle of the chapter number four. And in the chapter number four, Krishna is reaching once more to a very important subject which was touched already in the chapter number three when he speaks about sacrifice. In our last discourse, last Thursday, I explained with great clarity that the word sacrifice from English is quite inappropriate to translate the meaning of the concept of sacrifice because we often understand sacrifice as like in animal sacrifice, human sacrifice, self-sacrifice, sacrificing something for a cause or for an ideology and many such meanings are involved in the word sacrifice. That is why almost always the word sacrifice has a bit of a scary connotation. To some people it gives almost a connotation which is cultish, religious, and of course we have decided this, we have clarified this, that all the religions and all the spirituality of the world is born out of sacrifice, it is based out of sacrifice. Sacrifice basically means that the creative energy which comes from the beyond has to be returned to the beyond. If the clouds only pour rain on earth, but the earth is not vaporizing water back to the clouds, the circle will stop. This circuit has to be closed. Sacrifice is the closing of the circle. There exists a power which gives life to the whole universe. The universe has to return something back to that power. Sacrifice basically represents the transferring of an influence from Prakriti to Purusha, from the manifestation to the non-manifestation. The non-manifestation gives something to the manifestation. Purusha gives something to the Prakriti. That something is life itself, consciousness. It can be considered a sacrifice of the divine consciousness to enliven life itself, that spirit is present in all the materialistic manifestations of life. In every atom, in every manifestation, the spirit is present. For this, the spirit has to accede to this, the spirit has to concede to this, the spirit has to accept, it's like a sacrifice. Like why wouldn't the spirit simply stay away? Why does the spirit has to be there? The spirit is there, just taking an absolutely peculiar example, the spirit is there in the life of a non-spiritual person. But from the standpoint of the spirit, the life of the non-spiritual person is an offense. It is denying its very existence and purpose. Then why shouldn't the spirit go away? Why does the spirit need to sacrifice itself to be present there? Fact is, therefore, to make the long story short, that the divine consciousness to be present in the nature 
commit a sacrifice, a self-sacrifice, like I'm getting out of my undifferentiation, I'm getting out of my transcendence, I'm getting out of my peace, and I get involved in the drama of the universe, while I didn't really need to do that, because the Divine Consciousness is not obliged to do anything, therefore there is no imposition. And thus we can say that the universe is created through sacrifice. A part of the Divine Consciousness accepts to become manifestation, and manifestation is not like the Divine Consciousness, because manifestation is quantitative and limited, in manifestation you cannot move with whatever speed you may wish to move because there are limitations of the speed. In manifestation there are so many other limitations such as the physical life with the ultimate, the lowest level of manifestation is full of limitations. The physical body, the existence of the physical body automatically limits us severely. We need to eat to sustain the physical body alive. We need to protect it from excesses of temperature. We need to do a lot of things. And thus, the spirit participates to all this. From the standpoint of the spirit compared with oneness, this is a sacrifice. It's like, why would I do that sacrifice? Therefore, this is the equivalent of the rain. Rain itself in the old traditions was considered a sacrifice. It's like heaven fertilizes the earth. If there would be no rain, there would be no fertilization of the earth. If there would be no fertilization of the earth, we wouldn't be able to live. So we get the gift of life somehow from above. But it is not only possible to have matter born out of nothingness. It is not possible to get only manifestation out of non-manifestation, because you necessarily must have the opposite, like something from the manifestation must go into non-manifestation. To use a simile from astronomy, which is not a perfect metaphysical simile, but in a visual manner it's pretty good, we would say that if you have on one hand black holes, which can keep drinking the matter of the universe, everything from a single atom to planets and even other suns, stars, if they fall in the ray of attraction, in the zone of attraction of a black hole, they will be sucked into it and turned into a patch of darkness, into something inscrutable. They would be like dematerialized. They are not truly dematerialized, but as far as we are concerned visually and as far as it concerns our power to interact with it, it is as if they were dematerialized. We cannot have only matter being turned into the void. From the void, that matter must come back. So when the black holes accumulate too much matter, then they become novas or supernovas, they reach a critical mass, and then they explode and spew a lot of matter, filling up the universe. This is like the heartbeat of the universe. The black holes dematerialize matter, they take matter out of the economy of the universe, and the supernovas 
the novas, supernovas, quasars, and others, they spew it back into manifestation. They, so therefore, here the cycle exists. Part goes from material to immaterial, part comes back from the transcendent back into matter. The part which comes from the spirit to the matter happens by itself. That means you and I, we have not taken any conscious action to create this universe or to create ourselves. This is a gift which comes from above, from on high. But our part is to close the circle. If there is a rain coming from above, we have to send the vaporization back to the clouds. This is called sacrifice. You have to give something. You have to dematerialize matter and turn it into spirit, turn it into transcendence. This is the meaning of sacrifice. And the meaning of sacrifice is not that the divine consciousness is hungry and needs your sacrifice. It's that if we don't do it, this circle stops. Actually, if now you think this is a judgment in terms of classical yoga, where spirit and matter are called relatively Purusha and Prakriti, if we suddenly change the names to another tradition, which would be the Tantric tradition, then spirit is Shiva and matter is Shakti. And therefore, this there exists an inter-exchange. Shiva pours his seed into Shakti, and Shakti gives something, or ought to give something back to Shiva. In Shiva and Shakti mysticism, or metaphysics, this, is, this would be called rather the dance of Shiva and Shakti. Shiva and Shakti give and receive something from each other, and that something is of course translated as love. They love each other, and they give each other to each other, and that's a sacrifice. Love itself is a sacrifice, like in Bhakti Yoga, where you sacrifice on the fire or into the fire of love. Therefore, the concept of sacrifice is our choice, it is what we are supposed to do, it is the dharma, it is the half of the cosmic cycle, it is the half of the cosmic circle on which we have influence. People who are materialistic, they have naturally given up any form of sacrifice, because it, it sounds like brain dead and useless to sacrifice to a mysterious entity which cannot be seen, cannot be felt, is not made of energy, it is beyond space, beyond time, and then it's like a total waste of resources. And because of this, you sacrifice is possible only for people who have an opening towards something higher. As I clarified last time, and a few months ago when I commented on chapter 3, the sacrifice, because then Krishna again spoke a little bit about the sacrifice, the sacrifice can be done towards very low entities, 
then you don't completely close the circle. It's like the water vaporizes, but it goes only 200 meters up in the atmosphere, and then it becomes some very low clouds, and it rains immediately. But it never reaches it to the stratosphere or to some real high levels. There exists consecration or sacrifice to the lower spirits, the spirits of darkness, the ancestors, the dead. There exists sacrifice to the ghosts. There exists sacrifice to the titans, to the, to the rajasic spirits of power, to the demons which give power and cities. There exists sacrifice to the devas who are sattvic and who are giving us sattvic gifts and more gifts of light. And finally, there exists a final, ultimate type of sacrifice, which is what's happening when you go even beyond the gods. Above the gods, there is only the god of the gods, Deva Deva, the Deva of the Devas. And Deva Deva is the name of Shiva, Deva Deva is the name of the Divine Consciousness. And thus, there are four levels of sacrifice, and obviously Krishna, who knows of all of them, he wrinkles his nose at all the other three. He is kind of tolerant towards the highest of those three, which is the sacrifice to the gods, the sattvic sacrifice proposed, promoted in the Vedic culture. <clears throat> he can put up with that one, although that one is still too low compared to what Krishna wants to preach, because Krishna wants to preach only the level four, the fourth type of sacrifice, to sacrifice directly to the transcendent consciousness, to sacrifice directly to the divine. Therefore, the first thing which a person should need to sacrifice would be to have the intuition of something higher, and to address that something higher, preferably the Divine Consciousness, to realize the usefulness of giving to something higher. Even if it's not usefulness, then it would be called love, aspiration, like the people who do sacrifice, so to call it. Again, I'm not very comfortable with the word sacrifice, but that's what's used in English although sacrifice has these weird connotations to it, with which I disagree because those are very partial and very peculiar forms of sacrifice. And thus, the sacrifice in the moment when a human being has aspiration and love, that human being doesn't require any payment, that human being does not require any reward, like Jesus says, there are people who do the will of God because of fear. They are afraid of hell. They are afraid of spanking. They are afraid of pain. They are afraid of death. They are afraid of 120 other things. And because of this, they behave. It, even that is better than not to behave. But still, those people, says Jesus, are the slaves of God. They behave like slaves because they act out of fear. And then on the second level there are the Rajasic people. The Rajasic people, they act because they see the benefit. There is a God in this universe, and if you make friend with a big boss, 
you are going to have lots of benefits. Why would you produce negative karma when you can make a little bit of effort and produce positive karma and be always lucky and good? You can, once you know metaphysics, you can learn a lot of tricks to cheat. Even if you kill somebody who is your rival in business, then you go and save 20 other lives in Africa by giving them food and you pay your karma and you get away with it. And in this way there are intelligent people who have learned in a slightly demonic way to manipulate in a selfish way the laws of the universe and they can get away with a lot because they have simply become intelligent and these are the merchants of God. They want to get benefits. Those are the smart people who know how to manipulate the system. They know the loopholes in the system and they can take advantage of it. And then, says Jesus, there are those who do the Dharma, who do the divine law, out of love. Like they don't need any incentive, they are not afraid, they don't hope to get anything in return, but simply because they love God, they automatically feel aligned with the will of God. They feel that out of love, they participate to this wave of divine life, and then they do simply because it's right, because their love dictates them to do right. Remember that love always makes a person do the right thing. But of course, more than often, love is not love. Love is attachment, love is desire, love is lust, love is a lot of other things. But if it would be really love, it wouldn't, be, it wouldn't produce negativities. That's why Augustine, Saint Augustine in the third century says, love God and do what you want. This is not libertinism. This simply says when you love God, you will never do horrible things. It doesn't let you. That love it is acting like a sort of an inner censorship, like a filter which simply does not allow to you to go beyond a certain level. Then you can't even be a merchant of God. Jesus, for example, in his own way, the word is strong, but he behaved in very strong ways. Jesus despises those who are merchants of God. Like, to be a merchant of God in the eyes of Jesus is still ugly, selfish. It's not really what God wants you to be, where God wants you to be. And that's why the sacrifice, of course, has to go spontaneously to the highest, without any mercantile feeling. And Krishna saying this, now that he defines sacrifice, Krishna he gives some brilliant examples of sacrifice, which are giving to us examples about what spiritual life is. And he starts with a very big paragraph, in which he basically talks about sacrifice in an absolutely metaphysical way. He, in the last shloka, which I read last time, he said, Brahman, which is a Vedantic, Vedic name for God, Brahman, the Absolute, Brahman, the Absolute, you can easily say God, or Tao, the Absolute, Brahman is the act of offering, Brahman is the oblation, like the melted butter in the Vedic fire poured by Brahman, that's the priest, into fire that is also Brahman. So the priest being Brahman, 
pours some Brahman, the butter, into the fire, which is also Brahman. Thus, Brahman verily shall be reached by him who always sees Brahman in action. And as I explained last time, of course, Krishna first of all wants to ground, to root the sacrifice into oneness. If love cannot be explained by oneness, then love is something useless and superfluous. But fortunately, love indeed, first and foremost, comes from oneness, because it is an act of oneness. Even when you love somebody, like a person or God, and they seem to be you and the beloved, still the love brings everything to oneness. And thus, everything has to proceed from oneness, or else it does not represent a spiritual principle. And of course, Krishna wants to show that sacrifice is nothing else but God into God, by God, and for God. There is nothing else. There is only one presence in this universe, which is Shiva, the universal consciousness, Brahman, God, call it what you want. And this is the single actor that plays all the roles, which are I, you, and he, and she. And thus, sacrifice itself is understood as proceeding from oneness. Then, when we look at the other forms and exemplifications, the other forms and exemplifications are very magic. But Krishna does not want to start from some magic hocus-pocus, giving the feeling that he is showing to people some tricks. Because then this would encourage the mentality of the people who are tricky, of the people who are the merchants of God, and they just want to learn some dirty secrets from Krishna to understand how to manipulate the whole game, how to gain advantage at every turning point from understanding very well the laws of the universe. And that is not supposed to be the primary motivation and definitely is not the primary motivation for Krishna. And that's why Krishna in the strophe number 24, he starts top. He starts at the very top by first of all announcing the principle of oneness. And then he starts giving marvelous examples which are inspiration and you can see how many things in the spiritual culture of the planet Earth have resulted from this understanding. I hope that the next shlokas are going to enlarge your understanding and maybe even give you ideas. Because all the religions, all the forms of spiritual practice are nothing else but sacrifice. Only that those who were, who established Buddhism or Christianity to speak about religions or yoga, Taoism to speak about spiritual paths, not necessarily religions, each and every one of those great spirits, they had an idea. For example, Jesus, when he reformed some of the old Jewish faith, he said, from now on, you don't give to God flesh and blood, but you pray in this way, and this wine will be the symbol for the blood, and the bread will be the symbol for the flesh. And therefore, the burning of the lambs, 
that the ancient Jews were taking lambs and the priests were putting them on the fire and they were burning them down to ashes, the complete burning, to give to God everything. Jesus said, now lambs are not needed anymore. Now you take a piece of bread and some red wine and you say, this is the blood and the flesh of God who descended into flesh on our planet to visit us and to save us. And by simply eating a piece of this and drinking a sip of that, that's your sacrifice. You can simply say, that's a very creative way. Is it the only way to do it? No. Buddhists do it in different Buddhist sects. They do it in different ways. Hindus do it in another way. In Hinduistan, in the Hindu tradition, somebody simply observed that fire acts in this way. Because a strong fire, you throw something in it, and nothing will be left. It's not entirely true, is it? Because something will be left. Ashes. But the ashes are blown by the wind, and you can scatter them, and they mean nothing. Nobody gets anything out of ashes. So with a very good approximation, we can still stay on to that statement. Fire is nothing else like a dematerializing machine. It's like, beam me up. You beam something up. Of course, fire is a metaphor. Fire acts only a simile for, as a simile for the mind. And that's why fire in itself is nothing. It's just an element of nature. It's one of the five elements. And just throwing some sesame seeds or some butter into some fire, and that fire burns it more or less. It's not a big deal in itself. But with fire, you can send the prana from those seeds and from that butter to the spirits of the dead, the tamasic sacrifice, to the asuras, to the titans, to the demons, the rajasic sacrifice, to the devas, to the spirits of life, the sattvic sacrifice, and why not, even to God, the transcendent spirit. Because it's not really literally the fire which does the job. The fire is only like a simile and it's a sort of a resonance. As the fire dematerializes, so I, by throwing this into the fire, want to show that I want to take matter and dematerialize it into the black hole, send it back into the spirit. Thus, why did the rishis choose fire and Jesus chose bread and wine? And others chose other things because the history of spirituality is not limited to the Brahmins from India and to Jesus. I just took two examples which simply says each one of these great masters simply has an idea. They have creativity and they find one more way of doing it. And I'm sure that if great spirits will continue visiting this planet, new ways will appear. It's not over. Other ways, and if you are enlightened by some grace, I'm sure that even though you might not be able to create a world religion, because you have to have an extremely great warrant from on high for producing such a historical effect on this planet, Nevertheless, for you personally, and maybe for a few friends, family, or disciples, 
you will be able to invent new ways, novel, which have never been done in the last 5,000 years, new ways of doing sacrifice. Sacrifice can be done in a myriad ways. You just have to understand the principle and to have enough examples and then your creativity coming from God, God in you, can simply at some point say, wait a second, then if I do that, isn't it the same? And you might discover a way which has not been done for the last 10,000 years on the face of this earth, or you may simply discover something which has not been done on the face of this earth yet. That is why sacrifice is an open subject, because every new religious creation is nothing else but another new, innovative, ingenious way of doing sacrifice in a way which is appealing to the people of that age and to the people of that place. And here are examples then given by Krishna. Krishna says, some yogis perform sacrifice, yagya, again, to call it yagya, yagya means literally fire sacrifice. But remember, it's a symbolic name by which it means to send things up to expedite things up. And he says, some yogis perform, perform yagya merely by worshipping the gods. Like, worshipping the gods is tolerated. It is tolerated because the gods are sattvic, they are spirits of light, they encourage you to do the dharma and to live in a sattvic way, and they encourage you to be spiritual and to go up. So even if the gods are not God, nevertheless the gods can be a tolerable link, a sort of tolerable intermediary step. Purists would say no, they are not tolerable because it's a longer process. Why delay the process? Why not go to the top of the pyramid? Again, as you know, here the opinions are shared. The Tantric tradition agrees that the divinity can be given facets, such as the ten great cosmic powers, and by offering at that level, you actually offer to God indirectly, but still you're offering to God ultimately. So, some yogis perform yagya merely by worshipping the gods. If your worship goes directly to the stratosphere, maybe not all the way up to the level 4, which we could call it ionosphere, okay, I cannot consecrate something so it goes all the way to the ionosphere, but I know that if I send it up to the stratosphere, the spirits from the stratosphere are spiritual and wise enough, to take my consecration and then send it even further through their own action. Otherwise said in yoga, if I take a model of spirituality which is in the causal world, as the devas are, then automatically if I go to the causal world, I reach liberation from the physical world. And if I reach liberation from the physical world, I actually have reached the first level of enlightenment, and I have reached the first level of spiritual accomplishment. And that's why, paradoxically, the gods are good enough. They are not the best, 
but they are good enough, they still fulfill the goal because of the exalted position which they already occupy. So Krishna says, therefore, some yogis perform yagya by merely worshipping the gods, while others, and here there is a very odd formulation which translators have fought with it, ten translations of Bhagavad Gita will translate this second half of the verse in ten different ways. It's a very difficult Sanskrit pronunciation. In the translation given by Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, this half verse is others by offering the Yagya itself into the fire that is Brahman. Brahman, I compared it here, I compared Brahman, God, I'm calling it it as having a neutral nature. Of course, in Shaivism, if we call Shiva God, then we are tempted to say he. Also in Christianity, when God is called God the Father, we are tempted to use he. But again, gender does not apply to that level of amplitude. And this Brahman is compared to a fire. Then they say, again, Maharishi accepts this translation. Other yogis do sacrifice by offering the sacrifice itself into the fire that is Brahman. So the image, let's take the image. Brahman is compared to a fire, because in India it's the eternal fire ceremony, Yagya. And you throw the Yagya into the Yagya. You throw the sacrifice into the sacrifice itself, which means you sacrifice the sacrifice. It's even the sacrifice can be offered in itself. Brahman is compared to a fire, and what does the fire do? It devours everything, it swallows everything, it dematerializes everything, it decomposes everything, it makes everything disappear. Another comparison which I gave here in the beginning of this discourse, this discourse tonight was to compare Brahman to a black hole. Like instead of imagining that you throw in the fire, imagine that conveniently enough, near you somewhere, you have a black hole. And every time you want to give something to God, you just throw it into that black hole. And it is like sucked into the black hole and you can't see it, you don't know anything about it anymore. It's gone in a place where space, time and other things make no more sense, at least not in the way in which we understand them. And therefore, the fire that is Brahman is a little bit of a more active image. A black hole is a bit of, bit of a more passive, scary image, but which is more consistent with the definition of Purusha, like being a void, that the spirit, Purusha, Brahman, is the void, the great void. And what does the void do? The void can never be filled up. The void is like an eternal mouth, that swallows everything. Everything which goes into the void becomes dematerialized. It simply becomes lost into the void. The void can swallow infinite amounts of matter and turn them into void, basically. So here the meaning would be that others by offering the Yagya itself into the fire that is Brahman. 
So, Brahman being a fire, a void. If you do a yagya to the gods, even that yagya to the gods can be double consecrated, can be double offered. Like, I offer something to Indra, and at the same time, I'm offering this offering something to Indra, to God. So, it's a double level thing. Of course, it sounds complicated, but one of the possible translations is this, that you offer the act of offering itself, because why do I offer? I offer because this is Dharma. It's the law of the universe. Swami Vivekananda just explained to us that if we don't offer, the circle doesn't close and the universe is not working properly in our part of the universe. That we violate an elementary cosmic law that you cannot have only yin or only yang. There always has to be yin and yang, giving and receiving, materialization and dematerialization. There has to be an equality between those. So therefore, if I understand this, then I understand that sacrifice is necessary, it's not just a whim, and then I can say, okay, I will continue doing sacrifice, whatever that sacrifice means, I am calling your attention again to the fact that the word sacrifice is a not a very inspired word in a way, but at the same time, this tells me that I, I have, can have an attitude which rises above the sacrifice. For example, Ramakrishna Paramahamsa worshipped Kali for more than 12 years. And one day he reached Nirvikalpa Samadhi and in Nirvikalpa Samadhi he was literally coming to the point where he had to cut Kali in two, to split her with a sword because Kali was not yet at the level of the void and he wanted to reach this void, this Purusha, this Nirvikalpa. So Kali, that was his beloved, the source of so many goods in his life, he actually bumped her aside because she said, sorry, baby, you are in my way, you know, you are standing in my way, get away because you are obstructing my path to the void. Even Kali had to be surpassed. He surpassed Kali. And yet, after this was done, and after he spent months in Samadhi, still Ramakrishna Paramahamsa remained a worshipper of Kali. Paradoxically, like why did he need to worship Kali? Just was it a showing off to the peasants? What, just he wanted to be popular and to be like everybody else? But a man like Ramakrishna definitely had the courage of his opinions, and he often risked to be called crazy, freak, abnormal. He could care less about people understanding him or not understanding him, or agreeing with him or disagreeing with him. And yet, although he had surpassed the level of Kali, the black goddess of time, nevertheless, even when he was beyond, and he had an understanding which was beyond, he could still do puja. He was a priest in the Kali temple, and he would still do pujas. So, the principle is exactly the same. Offering the yagya itself into the fire that is Brahman. The yagya itself, somebody can say, oh, you can do better than that. 
Sure, I can do better than that by still doing the act as everybody else does it, but internally giving it an even higher meaning. That's one of the understandings and one of the preferred understandings. The other understanding here, the same shloka in the translation of Swami Shivananda. Swami Shivananda performed some of or preserved some of the words more accurately. And this translation is one which is often used. I have seen great Sanskritologists like Radhakrishnan and others who preserve this one. And this is more frequent but also difficult to understand. Shivananda's version of this sloka says, Some yogis perform sacrifice to the gods alone, which is the same first part, while others, says Shivananda in a parenthesis, who have realized the self, so this is for people who reach the, the certain state of samadhi, because you have to have a certain wisdom for it, while others, but some others who are very special, offer the self as sacrifice by the self in the fire of Brahman alone. They sacrifice the self in the self, or the self by the self. This is like completely incomprehensible for the normal awareness, because what does it mean to sacrifice the self? And you sacrifice the self by the self. And this can be understood in so many ways. The most simple understanding of it is you sacrifice the self, which means the lower self, you sacrifice the lower self into the higher self. That means instead of indulging into ego, you are striving to reach the Supreme Self, which is our true essence. That's a sacrifice, because one human being could be tamasic and become a couch potato, and indulge into ignorance and inertia and do no spirituality and just convert oxygen into carbon dioxide and that's it. And other people don't want to live like that and they want to offer the self, they want to sacrifice the lower self into the higher self. It's not easy. It's not easy to put one's ego under control to the higher self, because some aspects of the ego are overdeveloped in most of the people in this world. Everybody goes at some point into a stage of overdevelopment of the ego, that is minus the people who are very Svadhisthanistic or Mulakharistic and they don't even have an ego. But as soon as you get to Manipura, you have an ego and that ego takes over and it is thirsty for power, for influence, for all the things that you know. And that has to be sacrificed. At some point you have to practice surrender. At some point you have to start practicing humbleness. And it's not easy to surrender. It's not easy to be humble. Your ego has grown more than your blanket stretches, and then you have to take a pair of scissors, and whatever sticks out of the blanket, you have to mercilessly cut it to size. And therefore, basically, you, there are aspects of one's ego that simply need to be squashed, killed, because they have already become aberrant, excessive. They are exceeding 
you cannot, as I often explain, I do not agree with the statement that one should completely kill the ego, because that is a bombastic, symbolic statement which wants to say you have to be humble, you have to surrender, you have to let go of the ego, but as I explained often to people, you cannot kill the ego 100%, because even your immune system is part of your ego, defending your territory from bacteria and viruses. Even the need to eat, to put food in this mouth and not in other mouths, is a need of your animal to feed itself and sustain itself, sometimes to the disfavor of other people. You eat people from Somalia starve, and you are doing it because you have to maintain yourself alive. That's ego. But if you wouldn't have that ego, it would mean that you have to die. And God did not send you to earth to die. You cannot kick the gift of life in this way away. Thus, obviously, if the universe sent you to be alive in this world, the universe wants you to be alive, because being alive you learn something. So the universe wants you, even if you decided to be vegetarian, even if you decided to be vegan, you still will have to kill the potatoes and the carrots and whatever you are killing there to sustain yourself, because the Divine Consciousness wants you to stay alive, otherwise the Divine Consciousness would never have made you to be alive to start with, because it would have been a useless game if the Cosmic Consciousness would make you alive, just to see if you commit suicide quickly, quickly, shortly after, if you understood the law of the Universe. The law of the universe cannot be that the universe wants you to buzz out of the manifestation and dematerialize yourself. The law of the universe obviously is that the divine consciousness wants you to be in this world, but wants you to exist in this world conscious, self-realized as a conscious part of the divine consciousness, not only inert and unconscious and automatic at the level of an animalistic level of life and consciousness. And that is why sacrificing the self to the self or by the self, no, so we can even the meaning, you sacrifice the lower self by the higher self. What do you mean by? Well, I mean the higher self has its own laws. When I have reached Samadhi and I perceive my higher self, then automatically I live in a union mystica, I live in a dharma, I live in the light of alignment with the spiritual reality. And thus, I will have to kill before doing something. I was a drunk, I was playing poker, I was doing this, I was doing that. And now I have to sacrifice the self by the self. My higher self understood all those things from your past are abnormalities and disharmonies which hurt you, hurt others, hurt the environment and therefore then I decide to slap my own wrist and stop doing that because so I sacrifice the lower self by the higher self. The higher self is the judge. The higher self gives the norms the criteria which say this is good, this is no longer good, please take it out of your life. And thus, this is not easy. Everybody who is in spirituality knows that a part of the spiritual work, a great part of the spiritual work, 
is to correct this lower self. The lower self has stretched more than the blanket and everything which comes out of the blanket edge, you have to cut it mercilessly. There is an amount of ego which is okay for you to have because you need to survive, you need to eat, you need to have an immune system. There are elements of the ego which are necessary and renouncing them is suicidal. But more than that, start, start such as starting treading on dead bodies to get your food, becoming an animal and killing other people, doing injustice because you have to eat or something, that's a little bit of too much of an ego. Then, according as you grow up, your mind starts having cities, you grow up and grow up and become very intelligent, very knowledgeable, you see the ropes of the universe and you understand the nuts and bolts of everything, and because you have a huge ego, you become a demon, you become a horrible person because all your growing up, you having more power, you having more knowledge, is actually used in the service of a disproportionately big ego. That's why when you grow up, you want your ego to be kept within certain limits. And thus, I'm not saying again absurdly, when you do spirituality, you have to kill your ego. The ego dies, the Atman lives. It has been said like this hundreds of times, but scientifically, it's not accurate. It's a metaphoric way of speaking, which is not literally true because you can't kill your ego 100%. You can kill the 50% of it, which is redundant and painful and excessive. A part of it will have to survive at least until the death of your physical body. Because your existence as a physical person in this world involves some decent amount of ego. Even if it's a very pure ego, even if it's a very simple and elementary ego, still it has to be there for that. And that's why a great part of the spiritual work is cutting away the ego so the exceeding ego, so that you make sure that you don't grow up into a monster, into a devil, into a dragon, into something terrible. And because of this, in every spirituality, there are technologies of slapping your own wrist and cutting away pride, vanity, arrogance, greed, and other manifestations of one's ego. And Everybody who does truly spiritual work, because if you don't do this, you are not really doing spiritual work. You are just protecting your ego. You are just pampering your ego, and you hope to sneak through spirituality without having have to slap your wrist ever. It's not possible. Maybe if you are born as a 99% enlightened bodhisattva, maybe your ego is already to the right size, and you just need to do a little bit to do that last step, and then fighting with the ego was not your main theme in that life. But these are rare, peculiar cases. For the normal practitioner, fighting with some dimensions of your ego is part of the process. And as I said, everybody who knows, who has done that at least once in your life, when you had to step over your own ego, you know that it is very uncomfortable 
you know that it is. Maybe afterwards you feel relieved, but while you are tested and while the struggle still goes on, it feels uncomfortable. It feels like you are killing a part of yourself. It feels like you are persecuting a part of yourself because that ego, of course, identifies with yourself. And that is why, of course, here it is put as a sacrifice that some yogis offer the self as sacrifice by the self in the fire of Brahman alone. For the sake of God, with the measure of my higher self as judge, as nor, I can sacrifice my lower self. It's sometimes, it's like an animal sacrifice. It's like you kill a part of your ego and throw it into the fire. I give this to God. I used to be a very nagging, uncomfortable, negative type of person. And you know what? I have decided to make this sacrifice. It's like the myth of Buddha who had to who had to feed the hungry animal and he cut a part of his own thigh or calf, a big muscle, and he gave it. Like he gave himself as food for other sentient beings. That's exactly what is involved. That's exactly the myth. The myth is that sometimes when you have to step over some part of yourself, that part of yourself was created by countless lives in which you develop that ego. It is created by the samskaras from this life, your family, society, education. You are the way you are. And then suddenly your guru comes and says, stop being like this. And then people say, but this is what I am like. Stop being like this. But it's like a part of me is going to die. Stop being like this. Let it die. And it's very difficult to make a part of you to die. It feels like, is it worth it? Maybe I don't want to do yoga then. I mean, you're asking too much of me. Right? That's exactly where the amateurs separate from the pros. The pros are the people who have managed to cut little parts of themselves and throw them to the hungry animals who manage to, because of compassion, to cut something out of their ego. And thus, this is a sacrifice. Thus, there are two great meanings to this complicated shloka, in which it is said that even the act of yagya to the gods can be made as a higher yagya, as the real sacrifice, and that one sacrifice the self, offer the self by the self in the fire of Brahman. This is sacrificing the parts of your ego out of your love for God, out of your love of the infinite. If you don't like God, you can say out of your love for the truth, out of your love of the infinite, out of your love of the absolute, out of your love for nirvana, for eternity, for eternal life. You can give it whatever name you want, but the fact is that out of your love of this or that, you will sacrifice some parts of you, and your ego will become more and more harmonized, more and more aligned with the higher self in its manifestation. And Krishna continues with more forms of sacrifice. 26. 
some offer hearing and other senses in the fires of control. Hearing and other senses are sacrificed in the fire of restraint. This is offering the, the function or the energy of the five senses in Sanskrit language hearing and other senses is something which you learn in the third day of yoga in Agama Yoga in the morning when you have that mysterious lecture which is so far-reaching about the Karmendriyas and the Gyanendriyas the correspondences of the chakras there in that table the second column, which are called Tanmatras, go again, study your course number three from the first level of yoga. The second column, in the first column you have the five elements, the Buddhas, and in the second column you have the Tanmatras. And the Tanmatras, which represent the etheric essence of the elements, how the five elements are in the etheric body, are smell, taste, sight, touch and hearing but they represent therefore some energies they represent exactly like the pranas and Krishna is going to speak about precisely this he's coming back to this pranas because it's a famous concept in yoga this represents vital forces values energies of the etheric body and he says some offer the hearing and other senses in the fires of restraint, such as let's take a typical example of restraint. Some people refrain from food. They sacrifice taste and they eat relatively tasteless food as a sacrifice. For example, George Oshava the founder of macrobiotics, at some point he got annoyed by, if I remember correctly, it might not be true, but it was somewhere around that time, by the Korean War. It might have been the Vietnam War, but I think he died earlier than that. By the Korea War. And he, because it was just near Japan, and it was a big turmoil in that area, at the time when Korea got split between the communists and the non-communists and so on. And George Oshava decided to protest as a spiritual Japanese person. And he simply went on to perpetual number seven diet. He simply, for peace, as a protest against war, like what could George Oshava sacrifice? He could sacrifice his own taste. He simply said, from now on, I will go even for the rest of my life in eternal number seven diet. How many of you would take an eternal number seven diet, a year, two, three, whatever it takes, for some purpose, as a sacrifice against imperialism or materialism or Satanism or something? This is a sacrifice. Everybody, especially the beginners, when they go into a Shava diet, they go neurotic. Why? And they say, if I see rice in front of my eyes again, I'm going to puke. But some people, if they see rice in front of their eyes, they live 
because when they don't have rice, they die. So for some people, rice means life and salvation. And for some people, rice means that I'm going to puke. Therefore, that's what I say. What is it? What is at stake here? It is sacrificing taste. Here, simply Krishna says, some offer hearing and other senses. I am leaving it to your creativity. How do you sacrifice other senses? For example, the sense of touch. The monks in Buddhism, as well as in Christianity, they are not supposed to touch each other. They are not supposed to be touched. Like monks cannot take even a Thai massage. And they are not supposed, of course, to touch themselves. Thus, it's a sacrifice of the sense of touch. I have taken the vows of becoming a monk, and I'm giving all my pleasures of touch to God. From today, there will be no touching. I don't touch anybody, nobody touches me, I don't touch myself. And why would I torture? Somebody would say, why would you torture yourself like this? It's a sacrifice. Everybody feels, I have to give something. I have to offer something. I have to sacrifice something. And what can a monk who now has nothing give? A rich person can say, I can give half of my wealth to build hospitals and ashrams and universities. And I, but somebody who has nothing, what can you give? You can give your soul, but that's a very tricky way because people say, but I gave my soul to God. Isn't that enough? And actually when you check their lives, they didn't give anything. They just live a normal, selfish life. And then you tell them, isn't that lip service? Isn't it just a word that you say that you gave your soul to God? Because your life doesn't seem to show in any way that you gave your soul to God. And then some people say, okay, so I need to show something. What do I show? Okay, I'm giving my sense of touch. I'm giving my sense of taste. I'm giving my sense of this. I'm giving my sense of that. That's basically sacrificing the energy of a chakra, the pleasures characteristic to a chakra, simply sacrificing them for the divine consciousness. So, that's why he says, some offer hearing, some offer sound and other objects of the senses in the fires of the senses. Here it's not Brahman, it's the fire of the senses. The senses are something which dematerializes, which sends to God. And you offer sound into the fires of the senses. Like for example, the Buddhists have a concept which is called right speech. Like if you speak, please stop speaking bullshit. Ramakrishna, when he activated his Vishuddha chakra, he said, I could not, not only speak, but I could not even hear from other people words of drama. I was completely not interested in any drama of this world, nothing materialistic. It all scratched me into my heart, into my brains, and my lips constantly were wanting to utter words of praise to God. 
like people would say, oh, did you see the last Harry Potter? And my lips would say, excuse my French, screw Harry Potter, I want to talk about God. I want to praise God. If we talk about Harry Potter, I feel unbearable pain. I feel like I'm going to roll on the floor. Tell to me how great God is, and I smile and I feel me. Talk to me about anything else, but isn't this like a Taliban-like fanaticism? Yes, sometimes spiritual people can be in a stage of their evolution extremely exclusive and extremely intolerant. When they become enlightened and they have loving kindness, compassion and other things, they can be tolerant. So you can have somebody like Swami Shivananda talking to a person and that person says, my kids went to the university and I have a big flock of cows at home. And Swami Shivananda says, good, prosperity is good. I'm happy that you are having a good life. And everything in him screams, screw your kids and screw your cows. Why are we talking about this? I'm not really interested. This is chit-chat. It's like you are wasting my time talking to me about your stupid problems. And I'm doing it only out of compassion. I have to bite my lower lip and say, yes, it's very interesting, yes, you have a great life. Like, because I have loving kindness, I will let you talk your rubbish, but your rubbish doesn't really mean anything to me. The only thing which matters to me is that if you feel a lot of acceptance and love from me, maybe I can determine you to do one hour of meditation every day. So if I would be rough to you, maybe you'd run away and say, that guy is a fanatic idiot. If I am tolerant to you, I might buy your soul for God. I might seduce you into spirituality. And that's why it's kind of worth it that I can accept even some more diluted stuff, because that thing will eventually lead to something spiritual. But it's a very long shot. It's a very long, and some yogis, are having a very short fuse. Thus, there are people who constantly want to go into this. I once met an important scholar from Kashmiri Shaivas, and I could see that he had a very peculiar spiritual path because he was not doing yoga, and his health was deteriorating massively, and he was disharmonious in many ways. But because of his Sanskritologistic scholarship, this man was doing six, eight, ten hours of tantric Sanskrit translations of high-class spiritual Shaivistic texts, and he was living in an ivory tower. He was on Vishuddha most of the day long. And I visited him, and it was very interesting for me to see, because I knew exactly at what level he was, because I had been at that level and I could understand it very easily. And he had not yet surpassed, like Ramakrishna said, when I saw that Vishuddha is so intolerant, then I decided to move to Ajna, because I realized that there probably I'll find more tolerance, more compassion, and I will not be so extremist in my puritanic things. And indeed, when you go higher, then you somehow can cover it, you can put up with it in a certain way. And I was talking with this Sanskrit scholar, as I said, and it was very clear, like, 
I wanted to ask him, it was at the time when I was living in India, and I went to meet him in Varanasi, and whenever I needed some practical things, like I did not need spirituality, because I had the spirituality already, I needed some practical things. And every time I talked to him about practical things, after two minutes he started freaking out totally, like I was wasting his time. If I would quote from the Mantana Bhairava Tantra, he would become sugar and honey. He would become milk and honey. He would be like, like a swim in the water, like a fish in water. He was in his element. That's what he wanted to do all the time, to speak about Bhairava and Bhairavi, and to be into that, and every other thing was like, sure, now you're asking me about how to extend an Indian visa. You know, like, screw you for this, you know, you are spoiling my Vishuddha. Hi, with the coming, bringing me down with all sorts of tribes, uh, you know, and so on. That is what I'm talking about, that you sacrifice. There is a concept in Buddhism which is called right speech. Like, do not prostitute your speech, do not speak shit, do not pollute your speech. Hey, that is a very big sacrifice. It's a big sacrifice. You have to simply cut out some things, and either you do it deliberately or not. Like the Trappist monks, they could say the Mass, because the Mass is for God, but besides the Mass, they had seven words per day. Your chit-chat has to be reduced to seven words per day. Isn't that a sacrifice? There are people, some, some of our friends here, they organized a retreat, a meditation retreat of a weekend. Just two days, basically. And they decided to make it a silent retreat. And some people freaked out, like, will I not speak for two days? Yeah, what's the big deal? For some people it's a big deal because it's a sacrifice. You have to sacrifice. Other people offer sound and other objects of the senses, like the activity of the senses, in the fires of the senses. And the, the objects of the senses as themselves, it's not only about speaking, it's about hearing. For example, I hear yogis sometimes going with their walkman, and when finally, or if I visit them or something, and then they are playing music, which is an ugly mixture of Zvadistana and Manipura. Pop, shit pop culture music, a la Madonna and Michael Jackson and the likes of them. And I'm wondering, why do people cavort with this shit? Like, I would never play any of this crappy music in my house. I would prefer to stay in silence. I would prefer to hear the sound of the wind and of the ocean, rather than to hear those. Because those are stimulating impure frequencies in my Svadhisthana and in my Manipura, and they make me mundane. They stimulate in me drama, soap opera, and it's like a drug. It's like I fought really hard to extract myself from all the drama and from all the shit and from all the soap opera, and now I'm bringing it back into my life, listening to James Brown or I don't know why. 
Why would I do that? Is this an addiction? Of course it's an addiction. And Krishna says, some offer the sound and other objects. Like, if you are going to listen to something, why don't you take a vow, a tapas, that for the next three years, as much as possible, because sometimes you go through a busy city, through a bazaar, and then you can't stop hearing what you don't want to hear, but that's against your will. But as much as my will makes it possible, I take an oath that I'm not going to listen to any crap. I'm going to listen to harmonious music on the seven chakras. Yes, I can listen to music on Manipura, but then it should be music which develops heroism, courage, willpower, self-control, like good Manipura music. It's not that Manipura is too low. It's fine. Some people need to have Manipura. But I take a vow to myself that I shall not expose myself to impurities. But I can tell you with the experience of somebody who has been in yoga for 30 years. Some people have worked with this shit all the time. Even after doing three years of yoga, you listen to their walkman, shit is playing in their walkman. It's like, why? You want to listen to something pure? You want to listen to a spiritual discourse? You want to listen to Madhbhajan and Kirtan? That's what you want to listen to. This is what Krishna means here. How do some yogis do? Some yogis simply say, God, from now on, as much as my willpower allows it, I will not allow profanities and drama to get into my ears or into my eyes or into my nose, or into my mouth, or into my skin, whatever the five sense organs are. For some it's more clear, for some it is not as clear to, to outline. Therefore, this is a sacrifice, it's a form of tapas. You simply say, I am addicted to sugar, I will stop eating sugar for the next one year. I am addicted to pop music, I will stop touching pop music for the next seven years of my life. This is a sacrifice. This is how you do a sacrifice. When you do that, you dematerialize that because it disappears out of your life. And metaphorically, it's like you take that component and you have in front of you a fire and you throw it into the fire. You can even visualize when you make this consecration and when you take this decision, visualize like you are sitting in front of the fire Say the Shiva Mantra from Laya Yoga and then say, Now, O oh God, with all the sincerity of my heart, I am giving you this, I sacrifice this for the next 12 years or for the next 12 months or something. And you visualize like you take that thing, whatever it is, like it would be an object and you throw it into the fire. And the fire sends it like incense to God. Like the old Jews used to say, that the incense reached at the throne of God, and God was pleased. That's the meaning, no something, an echo, a ripple of your offering reached on high, and the gods and the divine consciousness said, good, good sacrifice. Somebody has made a good sacrifice today. No, like this has a meaning, this promotes evolution. 
So some offer hearing and other senses, some offer sound and other objects of the senses in the fire of the senses. It is a very important, this gives you an understanding. How can you do sacrifice? See no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil. The three monkeys, which are a symbol exactly of limiting from the senses, performing a form of sacrifice. And a little bit more now that we are in the heat of this, to just get more ideas, and I'm sure that as you will live a spiritual life, more ideas will come to you. If those ideas sound too crazy, and you are not sure it's right, have the minimal humbleness or surrender, to ask, to ask your peers, or to ask somebody more knowledgeable spiritually than you, hey, I thought about a sacrifice which seems to be very specific to me. And maybe your peers, or a guru, would simply tell you, this is ridiculous, You, it's a very wrong thought, you didn't think well, because sometimes you may be misguided, you may be a bit confused. But sometimes you actually might get a brilliant idea. What is a sacrifice, the sacrifice, for you, from your standpoint? So the number 26 was saying, some again offer hearing and other senses as sacrifice in the fire of restraint. Others offer sound and various objects of the senses as sacrifice in the fire of the senses. Remember that there is a non-tantric way, repressive, and there is a tantric way. Somebody would say, I don't want to hear anything. For example, in the Fathers of the Desert, there is a chapter where one of a visitor, a layman, comes in this hardcore communities of the Fathers of the Desert and participates for a day or two in their spiritual life like a visitor, and they are very hospitable because the visitor is God for them. And uh, this, he notices that these people who are total practitioners, like if you speak about practicing Christians, there is nobody who has ever been more of a practicing Christian than the fathers of the desert. Those were the ultimate practicing Christians. So, although they are so, they're singing, because in the church when you do the ritual, the mass, the singing is inexistent. They are lousy singers, most of them, and their singing is bad. And he says, how come that you guys who are top cutting edge in our spirituality, and you don't bother at all about the singing? And the old one of the old men tells him, because the people outside there, they brag all the time about their singing and their singing feeds their ego because they are proud of how well they sing. And they say, you should come to our church and hear the choir. That choir is unheard of. That's just an inflation of the ego because you are proud. And you don't get anything from it. That's not what brings the divine things. And that is why the fathers of the desert humbled themselves to be lousy singers so that they should not get proud 
that they sang to angel like. What an attention to detail, like I don't want to puff, puff up my ego. How many people would have thought to go that far? Right? So therefore, there is, a, there is a sacrifice where you can say, there will be no music in my life because the music is profane often and I can feed myself through my ears, you know, with praise and uh, such elements. And there is a tantric approach to it. The tantric approach to it is, I am going to, to be careful at my sense of hearing, but I promise to myself to hear always harmonious, spiritual, subliming, elevating music. That's on a plus, not on the minus. You can simply sacrifice your sound by simply saying no sound, and that's the Vedantic, negative, minus, turn it down to zero, or you can say no, you can actually have sound, like you say in Tantra, you can actually have sex, but it has to be done in a certain way. You can actually enjoy sound, but make sure that you enjoy spiritual sound and that you allow this energy to expand and to go to your crown chakra. And then it's fine. Then the sound becomes a sacrifice. In the moment when you listen to some spiritual music, on Anahata, and you get shudders and goosebumps, and you feel that all your energy is moving to the top of your head, and your hair is becoming electrified, like, and stands on an end, and you are having this mystical tremor, in that moment, the sacrifice of the sound is perfect. That's the tantric way, to go on the plus, rather, I'm afraid it fell somewhere. So there is a way of sacrificing by annihilation, like you throw it into the fire, you burn it to ashes, and that's the negative ascetic way. Or there is a way of sacrificing by inflating it, by blowing it to the size of the universe. Like instead of no music, divine music all the time, and goosebumps and shudders of transfiguration, praising God through music all the time. Then music again becomes the friend of God. It becomes a tapas, it becomes a sacrifice. So don't always think in the negative way. For every sense, you can have the negative thing. Like nobody can touch me physically. I am condemned to be untouched. Condemned to be untouched, try to think. It's bad for Anahata. One of you takes the decision from today on, I shall not touch my own nipples, I shall not have anybody touching my nipples, I shall not touch anybody's nipples. Pretty lonely. 
Pretty lonely, pretty no anahata. There is no contact, there is no touch, there is no love. Because you are an ascetic and you cannot afford nipple touches or anything to for the case. Or you can say, I am going to do Tantra and every time when somebody touches my nipples, all those shudders of energy, I'm going to bring them right here in the top of my head, subliming, and it's like I have fire in my nipples, and this is my fire sacrifice. I give all my nipple pleasure to God. Every time when I get pleasure, I would like to offer it as a gift to God. That's the tantric way of doing it, on the plus, not on the minus. Every, for every one of the five senses, I gave you example for hearing and for touch, you can either cut that as a sacrifice or you can sublime that and divinize that if you do it in the tantric way. With the form, the shape, seeing things, it's the same, colors, forms, with the taste, with the food, with the sex and other things involved in the water element, even with the material property, even with the physical body. You can have, because the Buddhists speak not only about right speech, they speak about right action. You've got a body. What to do? This body is an animal, an aggregate made of the five senses who wants to do animal acts. Ascetic, negative sacrifice. You simply put your body in the lotus pose and you move again in 2025. Like that's the way. Lotus pose from now forever. Stop moving. Stop frolicking around. Stop, you know, everything is just a waste of time and energy. Padmasana, forever. That's how, what I want to give to God. And somebody can say, but you can move and do karma yoga, like Swami Shivananda did. Then you don't need to sit in Padmasana and to restrain the movements of your body. Because every movement of your body is a diversion and a dispersion. Then you can simply decide, I move my body for God. I am the instrument of God, such as I teach yoga, I lecture on spirituality, I do karma yoga. Then the movements of the body are okay, but it's a sacrifice because then your body says, let's go hiking. And my question is, am I hiking for God or not? If I can make it for God, like some of the guys in the Vira group, they simply said, let's make a Vira thing and let's walk to Kaora or whatever it's called, the highest top of this island. And they did it like a sacrifice to Shiva. We make a manly expedition to the top of the mountain just as a sort of a sacrifice for Shiva. Then hiking becomes Karma Yoga. In Rishikesh there was a Nilkant Baba. His tapas was to go to Nilkant with water from the Ganges once or twice per day, 16 kilometers up and down the mountain, just to pour some Ganga water on the Shivalinga up in Nilkant in a temple up in the hills. Hiking can be transformed in worship. Therefore you don't need to stay without moving. Refrain your movements. There have been ascetics who lie down in a coffin 
They are Tibetans who put themselves in a box with sand, just the size of your knees, like this, and you are not supposed to move for three years. Three years, three months, three days, and three hours, you stay in a sandbox and you meditate. You never lie down, you never stretch your legs, you never... That's a sacrifice, a sacrifice of movement. Somebody can say, I want to do it the tantric way, I want to move, but for God. Either I do it like Nilkan Baba, or I'm doing like Shivananda, I'm doing the tapas. I'm moving and doing things in the name of the Divine. Thus, always interpret these things intelligently and see the two ways of doing them in the minus, in the plus. And the last for tonight will be 27, where he continues by saying others, offer all the activities of the senses and of the life breath in the fire of yoga, which is self-control kindled by enlightenment. Let's hear it again in the Shivananda reading. Others again sacrifice all the functions of the senses and those of the breath of the prana in the fire of the yoga of self-restraint kindled by knowledge. In the fire of yoga of self-restraint kindled by knowledge. I have knowledge. My guru taught me what the spiritual truth is. I understood it correctly. I have taken the proper decision and the instrument, it's not the only instrument, but the instrument here for Krishna is yoga. I had the luck in this life to discover yoga. And my guru told me with the fire of yoga, you can sacrifice. Yoga is like a fire. Sometimes it's obvious, like Udhyana Bandha, no? With Udhyana Bandha, like there is a fire in my belly, which pushes all the sexual and vital energy up towards Sahasrara, preferably. So, that's called the fire of yoga. There are several other reasons for that, but that's what it is. So, with the fire of yoga, I, have, I can sacrifice all the functions of senses and those of the breath, of the prana. Again, here we have the ascetic interpretation. We can sacrifice all the functions of the senses, like a mystic who says, God, I want to see only you. I want to hear only you. I want to smell you and taste you. And Right? That's it. Like, I'm not going to do anything. I lock myself in a whitewash room. I don't have anything on the walls. Either I go crazy, I lose my mind out of boredom, or because I don't see anything, I don't do anything, I don't smell anything, I am completely in a, like in an eternal samadhi tank, then I am offering everything to God. That's extremely radical, but some ascetics have done that. I offer all the functions of my senses, like, can you see television from time to time? No, because television is already a sin. No, you don't want to see anything. If you see television, you don't think about God. But of course, the tantric approach to this is, you can watch in television and see the life of Swami Shivananda on your television. And that becomes television for God, towards God. Like you can choose it in the negative or in the positive. God, I don't want to see anything anymore because eventually I hope to see you. 
And the tantric would say you can see God already by watching spiritual movies, things which are full of aspiration and full of light. And then you can see something. It's again the eternal duality. You want either to run away from the manifestation or to use intelligently the manifestation as a ladder to God, towards God. And thus Krishna here says, others again sacrifice all the functions of the senses, all the spirituality in the world, no, does so many things, and those of the prana, all the functions of the senses and of the prana. Your samana vayu wants to digest, and then you are fasting. You are not digesting. You are eating only one grain of rice every day. That's the non-tantric way. A tantric way would be, I eat some good wholesome food, and then I sit 15 minutes in Vajrasana and consecrate that food to Ajna Chakra, or even towards Sahasrara, I can take it then, and in this way I turn my body into the diamond body. I don't need to kill my Samana Vayu. I can use Samana Vayu in the service of something divine. Therefore, all the functions of the senses, all the functions of Prana, these are mainly the first five chakras, because the first five chakras are with the first five senses and with the five vayus, with the five forms of prana, they can be sacrificed. They can be sacrificed by denial, by forbidding them, or they can be sacrificed by guiding them wisely into something spiritual. Thus, you start having a bit of inspiration of what sacrifice is. Because sacrifice is not about killing an animal or, or sacrificing yourself, like giving your life. Those are also forms of sacrifice, but very peculiar and some of them inferior and of very low nature. Sacrifice in the meaning of Krishna is closing the circle, offering something into the non-manifestation, giving something away. Here is one of the simple sacrifices which was ordained for people in Christianity and not only, it comes from the old Jewish times actually, um, and it is a sacrifice which existed in the Western world for people who live in the world. Like, okay, you don't want to be a monk or a nun. You want to get married, you want to have a farm, you want to raise animals, you want to be a householder. So what do you do? You tithe which means you take 10% of your raw income and give it to God. That's a sacrifice. If you tithe, then you can be a regular citizen. But if you forget tithing, like people then have said, the church is a shithole. We are not going to give our 10% to the church anymore. Like it was their problem. Like they were the judges of it. But they could not be the judges of it. And they simply stopped it because it was an excellent excuse for holding those 10% for their ego under the pretext that the priests are not pure enough, they are not clean enough. But the problem was not of the priests. Because as you can see, the church survives even today. The problem was of theirs. Because if they stopped tithing, 
This was one of the very few spiritual things which they did in their life. Maybe they did a small prayer in the morning and a small prayer before taking lunch. But besides that, tithing was a real thing because that's when you feel money is like blood. That's when you give something. You give 10% of the sweat of your forehead to God. You don't get to ask yourself, but is uh, that representative of God really deserving? What do you care? Because God is everywhere and God looks at your heart. And if you are sincere, why are you afraid that you are giving the money in the wrong place? There is no wrong place in this universe because God is everywhere. What matters is your intention. Of course, this doesn't mean you should be absurd and give the money to a drug trafficker or to a pedophile or to knowing what they are going to that they are going to misuse them. It's within reason. When you when you use something beyond reason, it doesn't mean that you have to kill reason. The middle path, the golden middle, means that you have to use reason and something beyond reason. But it doesn't mean that reason became useless. So, of course, to the best of my reason, when I make a comparison between this ashram and this drug smuggler, of course the ashram seems to be, to the best of my reason, a sort of a spiritual investment. And the rest is really not my business, because I cannot be the judge of that. I don't know all the ins and outs of the issue, and therefore I give and I give to receive. I give because I need to close the... If I don't sacrifice, then I don't close the circle. Maybe you say, but Swami, I do a hundred Buddhiana Bandhas every day, or I stand half an hour on my head every day. Good, you are sacrificing, because sacrifice ultimately means sublimation, dematerialization, sending energy like a fire up to the high chakras, especially to Sahasrara. Good. But remember, for many people who are in the daily life, they were working like animals, sleeping like animals, eating like animals, having sex like animals. I'm not saying it in a pejorative way, I'm saying it like animals, which means raw, really raw, rough, like real rough primitive people who lived a very primitive life and they had no finesse. No spirituality, and even those people wanted to give something. Maybe their prayer was not developed and they forgot to do it. But at least by tithing, they were giving something every year. Every year they bled themselves for God. They gave 10% of the results of their sweat, of, the, of their brow, to God. And in this way, their subconscious mind was reacting positively because they had the clear feeling, I did my sacrifice, I did sacrifice. It may be a different situation for somebody who does intense yoga practice, or dervish dances five hours every day, or whatever intense sublimation spiritual practice they do. But try to think about those who are incapable, or who do not have the self-discipline to do that. Then they must do something analogos, parallel, something as a replacement for that. Therefore, the Shloka 27, 
Others offer all activities of the senses. Try to think, what else can you offer? End of the life breath of the prana, your energy, in the fire of yoga, which is self-control, restraint, kindled by knowledge. It's interesting that he says, the fire of yoga, kindled by knowledge. If you do yoga like an idiot, it will give bad results. People can kill themselves by doing yoga wrong. It has to be the fire of yoga, kindled by knowledge, a knowledgeable practice of yoga, in which you understand sublimation, consecration, sacrifice, and thus, then you can do it properly. These are very important things, as you are going to see by the end of this chapter, either you choose to be a normal citizen in the world with some level of spirituality, or you want to be a full-time yogi going for the big prize, anyway, you have to understand the sacrifice, because whatever we do in this world is governed by that. There is no spiritual life without sacrifice, and you have to see where your sacrifice is. There are people who simply gave their life, either as martyrdom, or giving their life sometimes simply as a lifelong endeavor. You can say that Mother Teresa, in a certain way, gave her life to the cause of serving the poor and the destitute and this. Mahatma Gandhi, in several ways, including the literal one, gave his life to the independence of India and the non-violent revolution, the non-violent movement of liberation. Thus, some, everybody has to sacrifice something in a yogi or in a daily life way, meditate where your sacrifice is, what your sacrifice is. Because life without sacrifice is adharma. It becomes a life without dharma. Dharma involves always to close the circle. It involves to do sacrifice. Next week, if there will be a satsang, because it depends on some program, you will be let know follow up. But in the next satsang, which I'm going to hold, I'm going to finish the list. Krishna continues for another three, four shlokas, describing different other forms of sacrifice, and then he draws the conclusions. We stop here for now. Let us remain in silence for a minute or two, so the mind calms down and absorbs harmoniously the teachings of such great metaphysical spirituality. After those couple of minutes of silence, we will stop for tonight and talk.